Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 205. Podcast, I'm Doug Wilson, episode 205. So I want to talk about, uh, uh, this time around, I want to talk about the difference between winning an election, winning an election, and maintaining legitimacy. Winning elections and maintaining legitimacy. There have been periods of time in our democracy when to win an election, and especially if you won an election decisively, uh, where that gave you A, legitimacy to, to rule, and B, a mandate, depending on how wide the margin was. So let's say it's a Nixon-McGovern race where Nixon won 49 out of the 50 states. Nixon came out of that not just with a, a legitimate election victory, but he came out of it with a mandate. If you won your election with a squeaker, in, in a squeaker, and the whole thing came down to a couple hundred votes in one swing state, and it appears that God has us teetering on that, on that brink, uh, teetering there more than once in the last few, few years, you don't have a mandate. And if the counting is honest, you do have legitimacy. If the rule says that the one with the majority, the majority of the votes is the next president or the next senator or the next whatever. Uh, then the the election is legitimate, but let's say someone wins an election by ten votes, and and let's say that he actually did, he actually did win it. Uh, if if the archangel Gabriel came down and counted the votes, he he won the election by ten votes. But let's say that there were all sorts of suspicious looking shenanigans that surrounded the counting of the votes. Let's say. The Archangel Gabriel didn't get to count the votes until after about seven court challenges, and we finally let him in. He finally counted them. the uh, The court challenges, the fact that the fact that somebody didn't want the Archangel Gabriel to count the votes, casts a pall over the whole thing. So consequently, you could come out. Everybody could know that this fellow won the election by ten votes. And let's say you persuade everybody. Yes, he actually won by ten votes. His conduct in the campaign and his conduct in the recounts and during that period could have lost him legitimacy. In other words, it is possible to win an election and lose legitimacy. Now, when things are stable, when things are good, when the economy is solid, if you win an election handily, generally, in the, under the old rules, the legitimacy came with it. But we are now entering a new era where legitimacy, legitimacy and winning are treated as two separate issues entirely. They are not the same thing. So, and, and then if you, uh, I, you know, I was postulating this fellow winning by 10 votes. If he actually lost by 10 votes and they squeaked out 20 extra votes that put him across the line that were fraudulent votes. And then that's discovered, then the illegitimacy spreads to even more than that guy's holding on to the office. It spreads to his whole faction, his whole 
party, everybody who thinks like him. So, I reviewed a, um, in another episode, I'm reviewing a book called The Revolt of the Public uh, by Martin Gurry. And he makes a distinction between all the people and the public. The public he defines as a group of people in the population who are informed on a subject and who care about it. So uh, let's say you have an election and ex- all, the, all the normal people turn out and vote in the election. And let's say six months into this guy's term as prime minister or as president or something, let's say that something happens that causes a certain sector of the public to go up in a sheet of flame. And let's say 50% of this public didn't vote one way or the other. But they, and the campaign was about other issues. It was about something else entirely. But then the newly elected officer went and messed with some issue that all these previously uninvolved members of the public cared deeply about, and he set them all on fire. Okay? They are the public. In, in Gurry's analysis, they are the public. And the public can oust someone in an informal election. So you could have, like, if you have two circles in a Venn diagram, all the people who voted and half of whom voted for the other guy, half of them voted for the guy who was actually installed. And then you have all the people who didn't vote and, and they, they didn't vote, but they care about the, they care about the issue that deeply about the issue that is going to run this guy out of office. And so they happen to team up after the election with all the people who voted against him the first time, right? What that ha- what, what you, what you have there is a, a uh, coalition between an activated public on issue X, Y, or Z, and an already activated voting populace who happened to break in, this, you know, break in the same direction. So all of this is to say that rulers, leaders, presidents, I think are, we are entering an era where they ought to care far more about legitimacy than about simply winning. It'd be, uh, it'd be better to lose than to win and be perceived as illegitimate. But there's obviously a lot that we can pursue there, so I won't. Episode 205 in the podcast, and thank you for continuing to enroll in this course, that course being homartiology, which is a fascinating study. Our word this time is duspas, duspas taktas, duspas taktas. D-U-S-B-A-S-T-A-K-T-O-S, Dusbaktas. And it comes up twice in the New Testament. Once is in Matthew, and the other is in Luke. Matthew 23, 4 says, For they bind heavy burdens, and grievous to be born, there's our word, and grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So, Dusbaktas means grievous to be born. And then Luke 11:46. And he said, "Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touched not the burdens with one of your fingers." So basically, uh, this passage in 
Matthew in this passage and Luke are basically say the same thing. In both places, the Lord is talking about the nonsensical burdens that were placed on those who wanted to please God. So you have pious and devout people who want to please God or uh, perhaps want to avoid angering him. This approach worked for them because a man who is not right with God has an instinctive reflex that makes him the protagonist in the affair, and so he wants the task to be difficult. He wants to crawl up the cathedral steps on his knees, praying as he goes. If I want to win my salvation, I don't want it to be easy, because if it's hard, then I get the credit for having done a hard thing. So you will have, um, you will have people who want to get saved the same way someone wants to be an Olympic champion figure skater. And so they start practicing when they're three, or in this, that case, when their parents want them to be a champion Olympic figure skater. So uh, you, want it to, you want it to be challenging. You want it to be difficult. So the burdens are still grievous to be borne, and it is a sin to impose those burdens, and it's a sin to accept them. So if some religious leader imposes the burden, it's a sin to do that. And if you're a religious follower, if you're a parishioner, it's a sin to accept such a burden. In the first century, it was lawful to lift a chair and put it down, for example, but you could not drag it. If you dragged it and it broke the surface of the ground, well, then that would be plowing. Okay, so you see how the uh, you see how the arcane how it gets uh, pretty fussy. If you go to Brook- Brooklyn today, there are many um, Sabbath-keeping Jews living in Brooklyn. So if you go to Brooklyn today on the Sabbath, all the elevators stop at every floor automatically. And that's because it is lighting a fire when you push an elevator button and a tiny, and a tiny spark is made. Exodus 35.3 says, You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. All right, so Exodus says not to kindle a fire in your habitations on the Sabbath day. And these people have decided that pushing a button qualifies because somewhere deep in the recesses of that button, there's a spark. That kind of thinking, that kind of obsessive, compulsive, religious casuistry is imposing burdens that are grievous to be borne. So we come to our book review section for episode 205 of the podcast. And, um, what I want to do is review one book with another book as a background. The background book first is a book called Save the Cat by Snyder. I think his first name is Blake. So Save the Cat by Snyder. And it's a book on screenwriting. It's on how to write a screenplay. And then there is a woman named Brody, last name of Brody, B-R-O-A-D-Y, last name of Brody, who wrote a book called Save the Cat Writes a Novel. So this is taking the principles of Save the Cat by Snyder, talking about screenwriting, and she applies those principles to novel writing, how to structure a novel. And this is principally a book about plotting and structuring. How how does the story arc go? How can you make an interesting story structurally? Now, let me first explain explain the name of the book, Save the Cat, and Save the Cat writes a novel. One of the features of this is that you need a hero 
you need a protagonist that learns something or grows in some way or turns a corner in some way or deals with some issue that he's been wrestling, he or she has been wrestling with for a long time. Uh, so there has to be some sort of transformation or story arc in your protagonist's character. Now, that means that some of your characters might start at a pretty unsavory place. They might start at a place where the person watching the movie or the person reading the book says to himself, I don't like that guy. That guy is a jerk, or I, I, I don't like him at all. One of the ways you telegraph, and this would be in a movie, one of the ways you telegraph that you should stick around because this guy that you don't like is going to, there is an element in him that's likable, and you're going to like him a lot more later on. At some point in this story, if the screenwriter does his job right, or in the novel, if the novelist does something right, you will come to appreciate this person. You will come to like this person. Because if, if the if the people don't come to identify with the protagonist in some way, they're, they're going to be disinclined to finish the novel. Okay? So that's where Save the Cat comes in. Somewhere in the early minutes of the uh, movie, uh, if you've got a dislikable protagonist, you need him to do some little gesture, some little thing that shows that he's got a likable side, that he's not beyond redemption. There's something there to work with. And w what he needs to do, in essence, is save the cat. So um, he's, let's say he's a no-nonsense businessman walking down the street, barking orders into his phone and, and just being all caught up in himself. And he thinks he's a wonderful person. And then he sees a cat in danger, a cat up a tree or, or uh, a cat about to get run over or something like that. And he steps in and does a little thoughtful thing. He saves the cat. And that, that's a signal. That's a little the tip of the hat from the screenwriter to the audience. Hey, stick with me and you'll see this character transform. That's what Save the Cat is all about. Save the Cat writes a novel, goes through the different beats of the novel. What is the, um, what's the catalyst that sets everything in motion? What's the midpoint of the, uh, of the novel? What is the uh, finale? What's the finale like? How do you, how do you wrap things up? Uh, and Save the Cat writes a novel is uh, extremely helpful. There are some things. I, now, I believe that you are, I believe that you can't save everything with structure. Obviously, someone could follow the beat sheet that uh, Brody sets out for you in a slavish, methodical way, and still write a crummy book. But there are people who can write scintillating sentences, and they, you ask them to sit down and write me 10 metaphors, they can do one, two, three, four, five, and they can, they can come up with metaphors, but they can't arrange them in a structure that flows or that makes the, basically your, your job as a novelist is to make the reader hungry to turn the next page. You want them to have trouble going to bed on time because you want them to turn the page. And, and they have to make themselves stop, put it down, and then they're looking forward to a time tomorrow when they can pick the book up again. In order to create that effect in your reader, you have to pay attention 
to the architectonic forms of what you're doing. You can't just have, and then Bob said, and then Sally said, and then Bob said, and then Sally said. There's got to be a rhyme or a reason to it. And I found that this book is a really helpful way of organizing your thoughts. A lot of practical advice, a lot of good advice. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Doug's book, Empires of Dirt, Secularism, Radical Islam, and the Mere Christendom Alternative. Order today at canonpress.com.